The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the personal perseverance of our 32nd Chief Executive. By all accounts, FDR appeared to have every advantage in life, family prestige, money, wit, and wisdom. But it may have been his life-changing disadvantage that gave him the inspiration to win the White House. And once he got there, it was no easy task, dealing with a global war on two fronts and an economic mess at home. Franklin Delano Roosevelt's affliction with polio and his inspirational rise to the presidency. That's next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn with the National Museum of American Presidents. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Our guest for this episode on FDR is author and professor James Tobin. He's won several awards for his books, including the National Book Critics Circle Award. One of his titles is on our 32nd POTUS called The Man He Became, How FDR Defied Polio to Win the Presidency. Jim, thank you for joining us here on American POTUS. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Delighted to, to talk to you guys. Jim, I thought we'd start today with the discussion of the epidemic you address in The Man He Became. Polio was a great scourge of the early to mid-20th century. Could you detail for our listeners its symptoms, its cause, and how widespread it was? Polio started to show up in epidemic form in small numbers in the 1890s, and then uh, got worse. There was a significant outbreak in 1916, and then it, sort of year by year, summer by summer, getting worse and worse into the 1930s, and then especially the 40s and 50s. Strangely, polio spread where there was good sanitation. It's counterintuitive, but children, babies, would would get the polio virus when they were very small. Polio, the polio virus is extremely widespread in the population then and now, but babies would, uh, their immune systems would fight it off thanks to their maternal antibodies. And so they would develop a lifelong immunity to the polio virus. When good sanitation became more widespread, they were much less likely, children, all of us, much less likely to encounter the virus when, you know, we were infants. And so we didn't develop that immunity. So we were vulnerable to the, to the virus when it did sneak into, uh, into communities. The symptoms, uh, most people would, would get the polio virus and not even know it. Those who did become ill had flu-like symptoms. Only a relatively small percentage would develop a paralytic symptom. This is when it, the virus sneaks into the neurosystem, the nervous system, and uh, affects a particular bunch of nerves in the spinal cord, which, which cut off the ability to control one's muscles and the limbs. That's when the paralysis would set in. It was more common among, much more common among children than adults. And, and so that was what caused great fear of polio. Parents would be aware of the, the you know, their, their children's susceptibility to it, even though the numbers were relatively small. The symptoms were tragic when it, mm-hmm. when it did strike a child. And so there was widespread fear, as I say, mounting 
up through the years of World War II and into the 50s, which is, of course, when the, when the vaccines came along. Now, we, we've often heard that Franklin Roosevelt contracted polio when he was swimming at Campobello, but you show that simply could not have been the case. Where where do you believe he, he picked up the virus? What were his initial symptoms, and how was he treated at first? We never know for sure when the virus entered his, symptom, his system, but it certainly looks as if he contracted the virus at a Boy Scout campout that he attended. He was an official uh, in, the, in the Boy Scouts of Greater New York, he went to a camp out north of the city in July of 1921 and became sick about 10 days later, which exactly matches the incubation period for polio. So his first symptoms, his very first symptoms, were a kind of hypersensitivity in his, in his limbs. And then he felt ill, flu-like symptoms, and woke up one morning at their summer place in Capobello Island off the coast of Maine with the, the earliest symptoms of paralysis in his legs. That paralysis advanced over the next couple of days. Um, he was misdiagnosed first uh, by one physician who thought there was a blood clot on his spine. And then about two weeks after his, his first symptoms showed up, he was finally correctly diagnosed by an expert on polio, who the Roosevelt brought up from Boston, uh, Robert Lovett, who was at Harvard. And so there wasn't and isn't really a treatment for polio. You, you wait and see how uh, bad the symptoms are. There is some spontaneous recovery of nerves that have been affected. If you lose nerves to polio, they will never come back. But the nervous system has a way of compensating for lost nerves. And so new neural pathways are found, and, and sometimes you recover quite a bit of your functionality, sometimes only a little, sometimes none at all. Uh, in his case, he recovered a bit. The paralysis kind of crept up above his waist, uh, into his arms, his hands, but those symptoms receded over a number of weeks, but he was left paralyzed with, with very little muscle function below about the, about the navel. Now, he was 39 years old when he contracted this. Is that right? Yes, that's yep. right. So mm-hmm. it was unusual for someone that age. I think you, you note in the book reasons you believe, both short and long-term reasons, why he may have been more susceptible to it. Do you mind reviewing some of those right. for us? Well, we know that, that FDR was probably burdened with a, a kind of a poor immune system. He got sick a lot as a, as a child, as a young man, and, and into his adulthood. So probably there was some susceptibility there. Then there's the way he was raised. Folks know that, that he grew up mostly on his, his parents' estate in Hyde Park, New York, small town, New York City. His mother did not allow him to play with other children very much. So this fits with this sort of profile of a, of a child who probably did not encounter the virus when mm-hmm. he was very small and so never developed that sort of lifelong immunity to it. Mm-hmm. So this combination of things probably made him more susceptible. Again, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to say for sure. I'm not a neurologist or an infectious disease specialist, yeah. but I think you know, those, some, some combination of factors there probably is responsible. Yeah, we also know that it's uh, the worst thing that you can do, not that most people know right after they contract the polio virus. It, 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 once you contract the virus and you start to feel those flu-like symptoms, it's best to rest to give your body a chance to, to fight mm-hmm. off the virus. Um, if you get a lot of exercise, you get out and do a lot of stuff, at that, that, that's fine. That's bad for the immune system because it makes its job more difficult. 
And so, you know, FDR being FDR, he, after he made that trip to the Boy Scout camp, he went straight up to Campobello to have a couple of weeks with his family. And FDR was a very vigorous outdoorsman, loved to play outdoors with his kids. They ran all over the place. They went swimming, they went sailing. And so it was a very vigorous few days that he spent just before his symptoms his, really kicked in. And so that mm-hmm. probably contributed to the severity of the attack, too. Now, you paint a very good picture of how FDR, once they realized what was going on, how he mounted a counterattack on his illness. How did he do that? And perhaps this is kind of impossible for you to answer, but I'm going to ask anyway, Jim. Why did he not yeah. give in to despair and what those had to be terrifying, horrifying times for him. Yeah, well, that's the that's the question, and it, you know, it goes to questions of character, resilience. You know, like yeah. how you're raised, the expectations that that your family has for you uh, when you're growing up. In in that family, th- there was a premium put on. Oh well, I mean, you know, the the, 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 the parallels to Theodore Roosevelt, as many of your uh, listeners know suffered from severe asthma when he was a child and fought back against that. His parents felt, especially his father's felt, and came to think that this sort of vigorous physical response to asthma was what, what got him through it. People in the family knew about that example. I think that was passed along to, to FDR. They were, you know, on the, on a family tree, they were distant cousins, but, but the um, branches of the family knew each other well. Theodore Roosevelt uh, was, was close friends with with FDR's parents. And so, you know, Theodore Roosevelt was a big figure in FDR's life. And so I think that example was there. His mother was an indomitable figure who uh, believed in sort of self-reliance. Now, she did not think that he was going to resume an active career, mm-hmm. but, but FDR had sort of inherited her kind of tough fighting qualities anyway. And, um, I can tell you what happened. It's harder to tell why it happened. We we just know that he just never said to himself or anybody else that he could possibly give in to this thing. He was determined to make a comeback politically and and physically first. Uh, He was determined to walk again. And so with the same doctor who had diagnosed him, Robert Lovett, who was one of the leading experts in the treatment of, of polio and orthopedic problems of many kinds. He just went into this very rigorous physical therapy program, trying to build his legs back up. As much as he tried that, that effort was ultimately not very successful. He never regained any significant muscle mass that he had lost in his legs. But with a lot of trial and error, he did usually by working with a, a, a physical therapist who had been trained by Lovett. He did uh, learn the ability to get around as, as, as best he possibly could, mm-hmm. which meant uh, first learning to stand up again with the use of braces from his waist to his feet, to use crutches, which is a difficult feat for somebody who is paralyzed below the waist. And then gradually, uh, again, this was really only a number of years of trying real hard and working with different therapists, he learned the ability to walk with braces, a cane, and holding the arm of, a, of an assistant. Might be one of his sons, might be his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on during the presidency, might be a secret service man, uh, or, you know, a trained ballet. That was a display that he made for sort of public consumption. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, he, he did learn to 
to ambulate that way. I remember <laughs> I, there was a physical medicine specialist at the University of Michigan who who uh, I consulted with on this, and I showed him videos. We've all seen at FDR doing that awkward walking gait mm-hmm. in public. And I said, is, is he walking? And this doctor said, well, sure, he's walking. Walking is defined as bipedal ambulation. <laughs> and that's what yeah. he's doing. He's yeah. up on two feet, bipedal, and he is he is moving forward. So he's walking with assistance, but he's walking. Yeah. So I don't know, went off in a couple of different directions there, but <laughs> that's a partial answer to your question. We hope you're enjoying this discussion on the inspirational challenges faced by Roosevelt. While we have a lot of other intriguing episodes coming up that we think you'll find entertaining, we also want to see your suggestions for future episodes. Simply drop us a line at AmericanPotus.com, Facebook, or Twitter. And while you're there, we'd appreciate it if you spread the word about the podcast. You know, he had a, 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 this amazing circle of people around him, too. Of course, Eleanor Roosevelt being chief among them. And, and some some have said that she becomes known in history as a, such a strong person, in part because she performed roles for an incapacitated FDR. But you say that's really a sugarcoating of the reality of what was a real independent, intelligent Eleanor. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she had, shortly before FDR, uh, was stricken with polio. She had begun to kind of strike out on her own independent political career in uh, the city and state of New York. And so she was already taking steps in that direction. The, the sort of the need to help him get through this crisis sidetracked that ambition for for a time. Uh, she resumed it, oh, two, three, four years after FDR contracted polio. She continued to be, you know, a, a great help to him. But it's that's not her. She, that's not sort of the way she sees her only role in the world. She she pretty quickly once again resumes this this career for uh, as, a, as a teacher in New York City, a school she worked at, and as a political activist. And she became a significant force in New York politics before uh, before FDR was ever governor of, mm-hmm. of New York. Truly amazing woman. Could could you also tell us a bit about Louis House, his assistant? What, what had been his connection to FDR prior to polio, and what role did he play after the diagnosis? Well, Louis Howe was a working newspaper man uh, covering the state capitol in Albany when FDR was elected to the state senate in 1910, and he uh, Howe, uh, an interesting character, uh, uh, sort of a crabby, cantankerous guy, but very savvy in the political world, spotted this youngster as a promising political talent. Howe had already done some work with with other politicians in in New York State politics, and so he sort of attached himself to FDR, advised FDR, and Roosevelt was only in the state Senate for a couple years before he was tapped for Woodrow Wilson's cabinet, 1913, he becomes assistant secretary of the Navy. Howe joins uh, Roosevelt in Washington as his uh, personal secretary, all-around fix-it man, speechwriter, publicist, you know, sort of performing all those roles that a, that a politician needs. And they became close friends, too. I, I think that probably Louis Howe 
was FDR's closest friend. Now, that's saying something because uh, Roosevelt, although charming and, and uh, associated with many, many people who, you know, were close assistants to his and, uh, of his and very loyal to him, didn't really have many close personal friends. And how is an exception to that? They were, they were kind of strange pair, this very sort of attractive, dashing, charismatic young politician, how a uh, number of years older than Roosevelt, kind of filling a, a big brother role. And so they they were close all through the, the period when FDR was in Washington during World War One, And then uh, when polio comes along, uh, FDR, of course, was, was out of public office at that point and preparing in 1921 to get back into New York State politics, probably to run for governor at some point, and um, Howe has to make a decision. He's going to stick with FDR as his political factotum, or is he going to be on his own, earn a living? Howe how made this decision to stick with FDR as his all-around assistant, even when, when um, Roosevelt was still bedridden and starting to, to go into physical therapy? Mm-hmm. Howe said later that he, he urged FDR to try to get back into politics, and if he did, he would help him every step of the way. And, uh, and, and, and that's the way things happened. Um, how continued to be FDR's close friend and aide all through the 1920s when nobody thought that FDR had a teacher in, in politics again. And then when Roosevelt ran for governor in 1928 and won, how continued to be his uh, personal secretary. And that continued on into the first term of the presidency, how died in uh, 1935. Let's talk a moment about Warm Springs, the, the rehab center in Georgia formed around the rich mineral springs there. FDR visited in 1924, I believe in 1927, he bought the place and took a very active role in further developing it. Could you summarize the role of Warm Springs in his life and vice versa? FDR, in the years um, after he got polio, was constantly searching for a kind of uh, magic therapy, something that would allow him to break through the constraints of his paralysis, some new therapy, some new technique that would allow him to walk again. He tried all kinds of different things, none of which ultimately helped very much. The, the one thing that, that his doctor told him to be especially helpful and that, that, that he learned in swimming pools in New York, uh, and the, 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 that advice was good advice, was to, was to exercise in water, especially warm water, because it allows, and this is true today with physical therapy, often physical therapy patients will exercise in warm water because of the, the buoyancy of the water. It holds the limbs up. It helps the, it, it makes it easier to move paralyzed limbs around. When he heard about Warm Springs from a friend and went down to Georgia to try it shortly after the Democratic National Convention in 1924, where FDR had electrified Madison Square Garden with this great comeback speech, he found that the mineralized waters at Warm Springs were especially buoyant. It's sort of the best environment he had ever found for conducting his exercises. So he thinks for a time, I think, wow, this there really is something of a, of a breakthrough in this particular environment, exercising in this, this warm, mineralized swimming pool. What he finds when more polio patients join him there after his visit there gotten some publicity is that a kind of community effect begins to, to take effect. Polio patients who had been shut away, who had been ashamed to go out in public, 
who thought there was no chance of having any kind of a normal social life, a communal life of any kind, they get together in this, you know, sort of isolated, remote, old resort, and they're hanging out together and they're exercising together. And this this has a wonderful kind of psychological lifting effect on all of these people, FDR included. And it's the first time FDR had anything that was really just his own project. He loved projects. He loved to run things. And and uh, Warm Springs uh, provided that. And, you know, it was, a, it was a terrific enterprise for him to exercise his executive talents and also to feel that he was, you know, possibly moving toward a, a, a real breakthrough in, in the treatment of polio generally. So it was really, you know, a wonderful place for him to be. He loved being there. And this led, of course, to the to decision to, to purchase the place, which he did, all with help from his from his mother's estate, uh, his own savings. He was not a, a terribly wealthy man. So he put a lot of his money into Warm Springs. It was a risk. But uh, then, you know, the task of developing it over those several years before he ran for governor occupied a lot of his time. It's also good politically because it gave him this little foothold in Georgia, in the traditionally Democratic South. There was this this Yankee aristocrat who could say he had a second home in the state of Georgia. Yeah. That was good for a guy who hoped one day to, want to, to run for president. So that was another benefit of Warm Springs for him. It became his place of retreat, you know, a, a sanctuary uh, where he could feel that he was both doing good and also was you know, apart from the, the rat race of New York and Washington. So it, it uh, became a very significant place in his life on a number of levels. And that's where he was when he passed away in 45, right? Yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had gone there for one of his kind of retreats, yeah. a little vacation, and, and died there. Stepping back for a moment in the story, how to present FDR's illness to the public wasn't easily answered. And I think you do a really good job in the book of talking about how in that day and age society looked at, at people with physical disabilities, very different from today. Can can you tell us a bit about what he was facing in that regard and how how and others gradually informed the public about FDR's condition? There was enormous stigma associated with being crippled. That was the word, of course, that was common in that day and until recently. You know, one was seen as an outcast. You shouldn't show yourself in public, if you did, you were to be pitied. And that was the thing, I think, that, that caused the biggest problem for FDR as he, as he saw his way back into politics. It was the problem of being pitied. And this accounts for much of the sort of mythology that has grown up around the idea that FDR hid his disability from the public. Everybody, everybody knew that, that Roosevelt had polio and uh, that he was to some degree disabled. But what he did by not showing himself in a wheelchair, not walking in public more than he had to, was really to to ward off both expressions of pity themselves and also, I think, the threat to his own ego mm-hmm. that, 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 that was present in, that, in, the, in the possibility that people would, would pity him. And it was just that that would be death for a politician, right? I mean, that's the last way you're going to get people to vote for you is on the basis of uh, calling calling for their pity. So this is the, the most delicate balancing act I've ever written about. It is is the, is the very careful way in which Roosevelt and Louis Howe talked about his episode with polio. 
the way he was, he sort of exhibited himself in, in public. He was careful, for instance, that when he was governor of New York, this is when he really learned the trick of how to handle being a public figure. He would, you know, in, in, in private, Roosevelt got around inside places, largely in a wheelchair. But he didn't want to display himself in a wheelchair because a wheelchair was symbolic of the convalescent of the, of the crippled, quote-unquote. So he would have himself taken into a room where there was to be, a, say, a public reception, a governor's reception, before anybody else was brought into the room. He'd be ready. Uh, he'd be he'd transferred to a comfortable chair mm-hmm. or, in the case of uh, you know his workaday routine, but behind his desk in his office, and then people would be brought to him. Now, seated, you know, the FDR, uh, even seated, FDR filled the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was so gregarious. He was so talkative. He was so animated that, you know, one person after another who worked for him over many years would say, we just forgot about the disability after mm-hmm. a while. It just, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's not that they weren't aware of it, but his personality so filled up any space that the disability just sort of disappeared into the woodwork. Yeah. So not everybody, not many, would have been able to pull this act off, this hale and hearty presentation that he made. And of course he was, he was healthy in every other way, but the fact that he couldn't use his leg. So there was no, there was no deception in the presentation of a healthy man. He was healthy, just that he couldn't walk. So his whole presentation was just carefully managed for those who weren't in his inner circle. And so it became quite routine, quite regular, a a, a perfectly sort of normal part of his everyday life. You mentioned earlier the uh, Democratic National Convention of 1924, and that really was where he began reasserting himself in the political world. Electric performance from all accounts. Can you tell our listeners a bit about that performance in 1924? So a key figure in, in Roosevelt's sort of political world in the 1920s is Al Smith of New York very prominent uh, Democratic politician, very much the sort of representative of the rising sort of urban, largely Catholic constituency of the Northern and Eastern Democratic Party. This is that the Democratic Party is sort of transforming itself. And Smith was the, the hero of that branch of, of the party. He had been um, a New York assemblyman, very successful there, totally unschooled guy. You know, we like to talk about Gettys uh, he didn't get his PhD. He got his uh, FFM uh, that referred to the Fulton Fish Market, where he worked as a kid. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Um, Smith was was governor in 1918, 1920. Then he, he lost uh, his reelection in 1920, but then came back in 22. He was seen as the force in New York Democratic politics and wanted very much to run for president. He did so in 1924. His main rival was William Gibbs McAdoo of California who represented sort of the Western and Southern wings of the party. So Al Smith needed a sort of blue blood aristocratic type to vouch for him with other Democrats. He recruited FDR for that role. And now FDR was no threat to Smith at this point. Everybody knew FDR had been uh, sort of thrown out of political contention by polio, but he could still give a speech. And so Smith recruited him to be his the, the, the chair of his uh, run for the um, presidential nomination in 1924 and to give the nominating speech in Madison Square Garden at the convention. So FDR prepared for this. This is the first big public appearance of any kind that he had made three years after he had come down with the virus. 
and prepared for it. He was barely ready to even walk across the stage with his crutches, but he did so. And this was something that all of these delegates and all of these folks in the audience in this gigantic arena were watching very carefully because everybody knew, you know, that he had been sick, that he had been crippled by polio. So how was he going to do? Was he going to be able to make it through this speech? What did he look like now? They had seen him, most of these people had seen him four years before in San Francisco when he was nominated for vice president. Mm -hmm. This hale and hearty, athletic, very young man nominated for vice president. So what was he going to look like now? So there's a great deal of drama and suspense as he gets up, you know, he's, he's announced and he makes this difficult walk a few steps with, with crutches to the, to the lectern. He seizes the lectern and he throws his head up and he gives that great Roosevelt <laughs> smile and the place just erupts to sort of salute to his courage. And he gave a marvelous speech. Of course, FDR even then was a, was a wonderful speaker. And when the convention deadlocked in the days after that, one of the most contentious democratic and political conventions of any kind in our history, people said, what about Roosevelt? Could he possibly become the nominee? He said, no, he was a Smith man. Physically, he couldn't possibly have made such a campaign yet. But it brought him back, you know, sort of, into the attention of the of the party and of the public generally. Like, good God, this guy this guy might be able to run for office again. Mm-hmm. And so that led to this uh, four year long sort of dance between Roosevelt and Howe on one side and the New York Democratic politicians on the other, trying to induce him to run for the US Senate or for the governorship when it was clear that Smith, who had been defeated in nineteen twenty four I was going to run again in 1928 and was the favorite for the nomination. They needed somebody to run for governor. And so, although FDR wanted more time to work on his legs at, at Warm Springs and increasingly thought that any Democratic nominee, including Smith, would probably lose in 1928, especially when Herbert Hoover was the obvious nominee. He was very popular. You know, FDR is trying to hold these guys off and say, I'm not ready to run yet. I'm not ready to run yet. Give me a couple more years. Now I've segued into the next part of the story, but uh, <laughs> that's what that's what happened. Of course, right, is that right. he had to succumb to that to that pressure to run on the on the ticket with Al Smith running running for governor of New York, and he barely won. Uh, mm-hmm. But that that is what set him up to run for president when the depression fell in on Herbert Hoover um, a year or two later. And the Democratic nominee in 32 was, was going to be the clear favorite. Mm-hmm. This episode on FDR is just a small sample of what the American POTUS podcast is all about. Quite simply, we're obsessed with the history of the presidency and how it gives us perspective on today's political discussions. We have a lot of entertaining topics in the works, but we also want to see what topics interest you. You can share your ideas for future episodes at AmericanPOTUS.com. Facebook or Twitter. Now, you uh, in the book talk about his early career. He obviously was a man on the rise, in some ways following the model of his cousin Teddy Roosevelt. But then polio hits. But a, a thesis of your book is that w- if he had not contracted polio, he likely would not have attained the presidency. Why? Why do you believe that's the case? Well, it's you know it's it's sort of a, a speculation on my mm-hmm. part, but if you look at it a couple different ways, 
you can see just how difficult things might have been for Roosevelt if he had not become paralyzed. For one thing, he was able to sort of, it seems strange, but to step away from New York State Democratic politics for several years in the 1920s was actually kind of a good thing. He probably would have felt obliged to go up against Al Smith when, when Smith was running for governor in 1922 or perhaps later. This, this took him out of that fray and gave him this sort of elder statesman role that he could fulfill as he sort of bided his time, tried, tried to develop more of a physical recovery. That's one thing. I, I think it's also true that the Roosevelt who ran as a, as a, as a paralyzed man, 1928 for governor, 1932 for president, had a story to tell about having been knocked down and made this incredible comeback that made a very, very, you know, persuasive selling point for him to a public that would have been skeptical of this born with a silver spoon in his mouth, Harvard, you know, every advantage type of kid. That was the difficulty for Roosevelt running as a Democrat in New York State. But here he was, having made this enormous comeback. He had, he had been tested. Everybody knew the, the, the terrible personal ordeal that he had gone through and come back from. Mm-hmm. And I think that especially when he ran for president in 1932, in the depths of the Great Depression, that made him all that more appealing to people looking for the right Democratic nominee. So it's the kind of thing you can't quantify, you can't prove, but he was up against formidable rivals for the Democratic nomination in 1932, and, and he won. And I think that that, that that case that he could present simply by being who he was by that point was part of what helped him get the nomination and then and then to, to win the presidency. And then the other you know, question is sort of like, all right, so what did it do to his personality to have had polio? Mm-hmm. Did it strengthen his character? This is this is very touchy feely ground to get into. Nobody <laughs> knows for sure. People yeah. people people are very confident in saying, Oh well he you know, he, obviously this made him sympathetic with mm-hmm. people who who um, had had suffered. You know, is that true? Probably. But again, it's a hard thing to get your hands around. I think that, that, that the way that it affected him as president is that it had his, his struggle with polio followed a certain path of trying one thing and then trying another thing and being everlastingly persistent. That was a great model for dealing with the Great Depression. It's, it's astonishing when you look at Roosevelt's language and talking about sort of the legislative program that formed and became the New Deal. He talks about the value of experimentation, the value of trying one thing, and if it doesn't work, you try another thing. Well, that's the story of his life for the preceding 10 years yeah. as he fought against polio. So that, to me, is, the, is sort of the persuasive case, these factors together that talk about both how he became president, how polio helped to set him up to become president, and then the kind of president he became as a result of that personal struggle he had gone through. That experience with experimentation, certainly the perseverance, the courage, as you say, that he built up um, suitably uh, got him ready for, I think, maybe the greatest challenges, certainly since Lincoln entered uh, entered the White House. 
Yeah, uh, that, that, that I think is certainly true. Those those two presidents had the toughest challenges in front of them, and you know, you, boy, you, you had to have character in depth to be prepared to deal with those crises. And and FDR had that character. Mm-hmm. You know, we can we can argue all day long about how much the New Deal did to bring America out of the depression, but you cannot challenge the fact that FDR's personal example lifted the nation's spirit, gave the country courage when he was inaugurated. It, it had an enormous effect on the country. And all you have to do is read read the letters that people wrote uh, about the effect that FDR's uh, becoming president had on them. The, 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 the effect of that, and not that famous inaugural speech about the only thing you have to fear is, is, is fear itself, mm-hmm. and then the enormous energy and boldness of the early New Deal programs. It just gave people an enormous lift. And that's, again, that, that's hard to quantify, but if you want to talk about what leadership really is, that's one of our great examples. Mm-hmm. You know, you, your book made me think about not just FDR, but other great leaders, and so many of them have faced some huge challenge in their lives that they've surmounted. And thinking, you know, we've, we've interviewed on American POTUS, Fred Logovall about JFK and his many illnesses he fought. We know Lincoln battled sometimes crippling depression in his life. So many of these leaders have faced that. Do you think that's uh, any, is there any truth in that proposition that the greatest leaders often have faced the greatest challenges? Well, I, I shouldn't claim to be an expert on leadership or, or on the sort of life stories of, of leaders. I do know in this case that, to get back to your earlier question, in this case, FDR grew because of the, the tremendous personal challenge that he had been through. He was not the same person in 1932 that he had been in 1920. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know how anybody can become a leader without having been tested by difficulties that they have surmounted in their own lives. Yeah. Uh, because leadership is hard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he had gone through those tests and had learned those lessons. I assume you, you did a, a great deal of research for this up in Hyde Park. I was uh, very fortunate to be director of the FDR Library for a while in the late 90s, a wonderful place that I hope our listeners have, have been, and if they haven't, they need to go. And uh, just any uh, recollections you have of Hyde Park? Oh, gosh, yeah. I, I loved my time in Hyde Park. I I <laughs> I had to keep going back and back and back. I, I live in Michigan, and so it wasn't a hop, skip, and jump down the road. My wife got pretty tired of me saying I had to go back to, to Hyde Park again, but I would go for stretches of one and two weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. At a time, and I actually, <laughs> I like to brag that I to save money. I I, I camped out at, at uh, Norris State Park up the road a little ways from Hyde Park, and so I would I would strag, scraggle into into the library some days. Uh, having had a cold shower and no shade, I think the archivist started to think I was uh, a homeless person doing research. But it's a beautiful place to work. The library is, is a, just a terrific, you know, institution, and it's just great to to do research in the place where FDR grew up, the place he loved, the place he was identified with. I would go out practically every day after the research room closed and walk around the estate. I mean, that's the place where he came to be who he was. Mm-hmm. It's important that the presidential libraries be in the places associated with the presidents and their, and their upbringing. Yeah. 
Yes. It's good that they're not all, you know, collected in Washington, D.C. It's great to go where the presidents were. Mm-hmm. I think you learn a lot more. You, you breathe in the air yeah. that they breathe. That, that, that made a big difference to me. I, I, I got a lot out of that extended exposure to, to Hyde Park itself. I couldn't agree with you more. It's a beautiful place. And uh, Jim, what's next for you? I am just getting started on a book that's hard to explain. It's a it's a book that's going to be part history and, and part memoir. Crossing my fingers that it all comes to pass. It's still in the very early stages, and maybe it'll all says a lot. The, the The book is to be about my alma mater, the University of Michigan, and a semi secret senior honor society uh, that's called Michigana. It appropriated sort of the mythology of the American Indian, and it was very popular and prestigious for many decades. It included uh, one American president, Gerald Fuller, as a member, and lots of other prominent Michiganders. And then it became very controversial in the era of women lodged civil rights complaints against it. And then uh, Native American students protested against it, took over the, the society's headquarters, and ultimately this, this group was thrown off campus in the year 2000, about 100 years after it began. Here's the memoir part. My father was the, was the so-called Sachem or chief of Michigana back right before Pearl Harbor. And then I was briefly a member myself uh, many years later when I was a student in Michigan. I, I sponsored a, uh, a move to admit women to the, to the group and was uh, thunderously voted down. And then I decided to stay in the organization. So this book is, is going to be about effort to figure out my relationship with this troubled organization and how it is that we think about cultural appropriation um, and just what we make of, of the past and how the past relates to our own lives. So, yeah, that, you know, yeah. if, if that sounds difficult and complicated, I think it's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we look forward to seeing that. When it gets read, I'll I'll make it available. Please, yes. So, James, we'd like to get into the personal side of FDR a little bit with a few perhaps unusual questions. Can you help us out with these? Absolutely. We've talked about he was determined to get into politics, but if that didn't work out, what do you think would have been his backup profession? Oh, my gosh. Well, it's possible to imagine a couple of different things. You know, of course, he was trained as a lawyer, and it, it's conceivable that he could have had a career in the law. He didn't like the law very much for the very short time that he practiced it. It didn't give him the kind of executive uh, range that, that he wanted. He wanted to run things, as I said earlier. So that seems unlikely to me. I'll, I'll tell you, here's, here's one way of answering that question. I think it was appealing to him to, once he had acquired Warm Springs, to simply stick with that. And if politics had not gone his way in the, in the 20s, I, it's quite easy for me to imagine that he would have had, spent the rest of his career, he's still a young man at that point, developing Warm Springs and possibly similar institutions across the country that would have been devoted to physical therapy, rehabilitation of polio patients, perhaps of patients with other kinds of needs. He was good at that. And he might just have had that kind of career in public service, you know, sort of in the, in the private realm, not, not in the political realm. There was a certain point where I thought, man, I wonder if he thought about that. If he, if he seriously considered just dropping politics in the mid to late 1920s 
and and simply pursuing the development of Warm Springs, which needed a lot of help at that point. That, that to me, is the only thing that, that, that seems plausible, that kind of public service career. So he, he fancies himself a writer uh, at points, but he was much too, as he said himself, after trying some writing projects, he was much too social a person. He was not the type to hold himself up in his library and just yeah. do research and write. That's hard to imagine. So some kind of public service foundation, you could have imagined him possibly being a college president, you know, with his name, he might have gone into academe at the executive level. But wow, it's it's hard to imagine this guy uh, not being in politics because he yeah. was just built for it. Let's turn to Hollywood a little bit. FDR has been portrayed by many great actors such as Alan Cumming, Bill Murray, Ed Herman, Ken Branagh, and John Voight even. Who was your favorite, Jim? <laughs> Who was the closest to the I, real I, FDR? Yeah. I, I haven't I haven't seen all of them. I thought that the Warm Springs no wait, no. Let me take that back. Um <laughs> Kenneth Kenneth Branagh. Okay, yeah. Kenneth Branagh played him in the Warm Springs. Branagh's a great actor. Yeah. I watched that and I thought, nope, that's not FDR. <laughs> Bill Murray with that atrocious Hyde Park movie. Right. I thought Murray was, uh, I, I love Murray, and I think he's a wonderful actor, not just a great comedian. He didn't get FDR at all. I thought that was a disaster. Now, I saw John Lithgow play FDR in a smaller part in a movie, it may have been a TV movie. I can't remember the title of Lithgow, I thought, was the most convincing FDR that I've seen. Interesting. Um, and then, you know, uh, going back to the old uh, Sunrise of Campobello, which goes back to, mm. to uh, 1960. Oh, boy. Uh, Greg Garson played Eleanor. And uh, I'm looking at my wife here. Do you remember? <laughs> Trivia question here. Oh, oh uh, Ralph Bellamy. Ralph oh. Bellamy played yeah. FDR in Sunrise of Campobello. That's a great FDR. Now, the movie looks dated, you know, by our standards now. Right. But I thought Bellamy was great. And it's interesting because Bellamy would have, you know, he was more FDR contemporary, uh, would have would have had a sense of, you know, what it was like to see him in the newsreels and so forth. Yeah, good um, So that was good. That's a good movie. So, yeah, tough. But the, the, recent, the recent FDRs have, have really been <laughs> big disappointments. <laughs> FDR, that's the thing. He's really one of a kind, right? Yeah. So I don't envy any actor who would try and play that role. Well, as a fan of Bill Murray, I'm sure he listens to this. I want him to know I, I didn't say that. But, but, but also, uh, you know, who played the – it was a very small role in Yankee Doodle Dandy. FDR was in that. Um, does anyone – do you all know that? It's a good trivia question. I have no idea of the answer. That's a good question. Yeah. Perhaps yeah, our listeners need either. to I, send us a note. They need to answer that. That's like our uh, Easter egg. There you go. Episode. Right. <laughs> All right, moving forward a little bit. The weight of the world was on his shoulders, obviously. How did he unwind? What did he do for fun? FDR had lots of fun. FDR believed in fun. He, of course, he had a number of famous hobbies, most famous of which is his stamp collecting. So that's, right. that's his sort of studious hobby. Yeah. Uh, he was devoted to that. He believed that it taught people a lot about the world and about geography. He loved to tinker with their stamps. He was a famous collector, not just of stamps, but of uh, books, art prints. He, he had a terrific collection of, you know, naval art, uh, of uh, portraits of ships. You know, kind of a kind of a prominent collection of that kind of material. 
other kinds of ephemera that he loved to collect. He would spend Louis Allen collecting trips down to New York, looking at all his favorite shops for prints and books that he wanted. But then to, to unwind, especially when he was president, he famously presided over an evening cocktail hour to prepare the cocktails for the, for the folks who were invited to that group. FDR was not much of a drinker. He would limit himself to maybe one cocktail in an evening. I was going to say, what, he, what he is his favorite food. cocktail? What was his favorite cocktail? Well, you know, I should know the answer to that. I don't <laughs> think I do. Okay. Maybe once upon a time I did. Whenever you do a book, you know, you, you, you become absolutely, your mind becomes crammed full of all that information, <laughs> and then you move on to the next project, and you know, tends to, the information tends to leak out. But um, FDR grew up in a culture where there was a great deal of entertaining. And so even when he was recovering from polio in the earlier, early years, in the early 20s, the Roosevelt's had guests for dinner practically every night. That was what you did. When, you know, and before he was paralyzed, he would go out to dinner a great deal. Eleanor didn't care much for that sort of social round, but FDR did. He loved to, to be with people, to, to listen to people, to hold forth. So, you know, I mean, I think one of the tragedies of, of polio for him was that he lost the ability to engage in all the sports that he was interested in. He was an avid golfer. We don't think of FDR as a golfer, but he was. He played tennis. He loved, he loved to sail, uh, sailed a great deal. And and he lost those things. Eleanor said once that one time she heard him express regret about polio was to say that he wished he could play golf again. Uh, and, of course, he was never able to do that. Jim, my final question for you. Do you have a favorite quote of his regarding the disease that caused him so much anguish? I, I ended the, the, the first book with this. It's a, it's a kind of a glancing reference to polio, indirect. Mm-hmm. And um, I think this came from uh, John Gunther's book, a terrific old book called Roosevelt in Retrospect. One of his aides said to him one time, and this year I was talking about some new, some new legislative move or some new program that was a little out there, uh, which was typical of FDR. He was always dreaming of new ideas like that. And he said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to pitch this. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to propose this. And this assistant, whoever he was said, Mr. President, you can, you can't do that. And FDR looks at the guy and says, I've done a lot of things I can't do. Perfect. And I always thought that was the perfect summing yeah. up of yeah. his sort of what he took out of his experience of polio. He had learned that you can do things that nobody thinks you can do. And, you know, there's no greater proof of that proposition than what, than what he had gone through with polio. And you, you tell that story so well in The Man He Became. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today on American POTUS. Uh, it's really been a pleasure. Great to talk to you guys. Yeah, fascinating insight. Thank you, Jim. The American POTUS Podcast is produced by the National Museum of American Presidents. Graphic design by the Thought Bureau. An original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, send us a note at AmericanPOTUS.com or stop by our social pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Franklin Roosevelt. Quote, Happiness lies in the joy of achievement and the thrill of creative effort.